Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. Today, I'd like to welcome Karen Viggers. Hi, Karen. Hi, Mel. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Karen is an international best-selling author of some books that I get, I'm hoping that most of us know. Uh, the Grass Castle, The Very Successful Lightkeeper's Wife and The Stranding. But Karen's new book is The Orchardist's Daughter. Um, congratulations on a great release, Karen. Oh, thanks, Mel. It's been really exciting. It's been five years between books this time, uh, which is a long time between drinks, and um, I'm really excited to send this novel out into the world. I hope it resonates with people. Yeah, now that's a really interesting thing because as soon as I started doing my research this morning, uh, I was hooked. This book is set in the southwest corner of Tasmania and it touches on a subject that's dear to my heart and it's logging. Uh, are you finding that that whole dynamic of, I guess, the political stuff around logging and the old eucalypt forests in Tassie, is that overshadowing the story or is it that whole story that's, uh, that's shining through for your readers? Well, I think um, actually compared to some of my other novels, because each of my novels hover above some sort of controversial issue, I think the forestry issue is um, much more of an underlying theme. That's uh, it's, it's part of the pro progress of the narrative, but it's, it's much less of a central, um, makes much less central glue than it is in, in the other novels. However, the context really comes from the landscape, which is where all of my novels start. Um, for me, that setting is really important and I need to feel that connection with a, a, a beautiful place in Australia because we're so fortunate to have so many incredible wild places that we can still visit without many people being around. But I particularly was interested in forests because forests have played a big part of my life for many years, Mel. My husband is a scientist um, at the Australian National University and he's worked in forests in uh, Victoria, the mountain ash forests uh, near Hillsville and Marysville for more than 35 years. And I did a PhD down there. Um, so those are very similar forests in uh, the ways that the politics are similar and things are much worse in the Victorian forests even than in Tasmania. So I'm really familiar with the biology and ecology of the forests um, and also the politics that surround, um, surround timber cutting. And, but I wanted to set this novel in Tasmania because of one of the key characters. But we can come back to that later if you'd like to talk more about, um, about forests and forestry. Yeah, we are, we are going to get deeply into character characterisation because this novel is is very much character driven. Um, but we just stick with the um, the landscape of Tasmania. As as a lot of us know, Richard Flanagan set his um, Damning of the Franklin book down there. Uh, Steve Parrish's um, photographs of of the old growth forests are just um, I guess iconic nowadays. Uh, a lot more people are setting their books down there, but exploring I think the character of the landscape itself is something that you do particularly well. Yes, well, it's it's often been said that the landscape is an actual character in my novels because what I'm 
one of the things I'm trying to do in my actual writing is to to take my readers there so they feel like they have a presence, that they're there among the trees in this case, uh, in the orchardist's daughter. So I want my readers to have that feeling of standing beneath a massive old growth mountain ash, or the Tasmanians call them swamp gums, which is a eucalyptus regnans, which, you know, rises um, 80 to 100 metres into the sky and will take you up to 15 strides to walk around the base of one of these massive old giants, which can be 300 to 550 years of age, which is, you know, longer than than white habitation of Australia, uh, including Tasmania. But I want my readers to smell the air, to smell the understory, the minty scrub and shrubs. I want them to hear the soft shifting of wind in the leaves. I want them to hear branches cracking and falling or when the breeze comes up, bark slapping against trunks. But my description is not such that I want it to be heavy and and laboured, but such that it brings you into the place and you feel like you're there with the characters. So this also requires because I write contemporary realist fiction, it also requires that I create characters that my readers can relate to, that they can join a journey on through this landscape. Yeah, now this is really uh, interesting stuff, everyone. The word foreboding, uh, I think, springs to mind when I was reading a little bit of your story. This this is a heavy novel. It's got some, I think it's got some really meaty issues. And it's, again, something that is dear to my heart. It's um, It touches on that whole, and I don't want to give too much away, everyone, but domestic violence figures rather strongly in your novel, doesn't it? Well, look, I, it's funny that you should say that it's a heavy novel because I don't see it as being a heavy novel. I think there's little bits of humour in there and a lot of humanity and there's a lot of hope in this novel as well. But um, what I was interested in, you know, in, I think in recent times it's been amazing. There has been a lot of fiction written about domestic violence. But what I was interested in, not so much the physical side of domestic violence, but other sorts of violence, um, um, verbal abuse and um, oppression by restricting people's lifestyles and bullying that I wanted to shine a, a spotlight on. And I was particularly interested in setting it in a country town because I think that that in a country town you don't get the dilution that you often get in cities and in a country town you can't hide away. So people know what's going on and I wanted to ask the questions, you know, if you know something's going on, whose responsibility is it to reach out to the person that's suffering from some sort of oppression or abuse? And, and what does it take for us to step in? And do we ignore things because we know people? So, yeah, I, I actually don't think it's a heavy novel at all. I think it's a, a novel full of hope. Yeah. See, I grew up in a country town, everyone, and I saw, uh, I guess I placed myself in the country town and I saw a lot of this stuff growing up and it was, I guess, I hate to say this, but fairly typical in in some places Uh, and life did go on and it was very much when the male or the man was, or the Australian male used to go to the pub every afternoon and the wife would be home cooking the dinner and have five kids. Uh, and, And what I saw in those towns is that life went on regardless of what went on inside the home. 
Yes, well, and I guess this is what um, the orchardist daughter is shining a spotlight on. And I, I think, you know, the other thing, Mel, is that it doesn't just occur in country towns. Perhaps it's more visible, as we were saying, but, you know, it occurs in, in cities as well. But in this novel, I guess each of my characters is experiencing, experiencing some sort of bullying or oppression. So do we, we want to move on to character because that's kind of part of this discussion? Can we do that now? I think that's a wonderful idea. So this is a, this is a story about three outsiders who are struggling to belong in a small Tasmanian timber town, um, a parks ranger, a young woman being controlled by her brother and a 10-year-old boy being bullied at school. So we, when the, the novel opens, we have Leon, who's actually a character from The Lightkeeper's Wife, who was, we can talk a bit more about where he came from originally. He popped up, fully formed, grabbed me by the throat and said, you need to tell my story. So he is just moving from his life on Bruni Island where he's been protecting his mother from a father who has an issue with alcohol. And it's now, at a, 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 and he's um, beaten the, his mother. So the father has beaten the mother. And Leon is now at a stage where he can let safely leave his mother and begin his new life. And he's a parks ranger, as I said, so moving into a timber town um, where he's immediately known as Parky by all the locals who are, are mostly um, loggers. That's, you know, a, a, big, a big thing for him to bite off uh, and, and try and conquer. So it's quite difficult for him to find a way to belong. Uh, and he actually does so, so through sport. And we'll talk more about those ways in which people do make positive connections and belong later on. Then there's also Michaela, who's the orchardist daughter. Uh, she's been homeschooled on an orchard in the Huon Valley. And when we meet her in the novel, she's living and working with her brother, Kurt, in a takeaway shop in the main street of town. But her brother is very controlling. So um, he, she's not allowed to talk to people um, except for when she takes their orders. Uh, she doesn't not allowed to go to school. And when he goes out, he locks her in. The only wonderful highlight of her week, well, she has two, I suppose, Firstly, he takes her up to the forest once a week to check their beehives where they collect honey to sell in the shop. And secondly, she loves to go to the tip once a week where she sees um, the Tasmanian devils that, that live amongst the rubbish there. And so she, obviously she has a clear, she's clearly oppressed by her brother. However, the positive side of the novel and the wonderful thing, the heart and the beauty I think in this novel is the small ways in which Michaela, Mickey, the small ways in that she finds to be powerful and we'll, we'll tease that out later yeah now I would never have given away that much of the plot line everybody uh but already um if you're not hooked you you should be we all know characters like these don't we well I think that um it's not it's important to explain Mickey's context to um to understand why you, you might want to jump in and read this novel because um I know mean, I have met people that were uh oppressed and, and homeschooled like this and and it was because of meeting them and wanting to give them a voice that I created Mickey. Um, the third character is young Max who's Leon's next door neighbour in his new home in town and he's a gentle kid who loves dogs and he's experiencing a lot of pressure from his father um, to do well in school and sport and um, he's being bullied at school. So each of those characters has something to deal with as we all do in life. We all have to deal with certain hurdles in life and belonging I think is a really big hurdle that we don't always have to deal with that, but at some stage in our lives, often when we're young people, uh, we have to, to tackle that challenge of finding a way to fit in. Yeah. Did these characters and did the novel uh, take long in the planning stages? 
Um, well, I'm a bit of a, a mixture between, um, a, you know, be, be, between being a plotter or a pantser, I guess. Um, I'm a great believer in, in having a bit of an idea where the story's going, but then letting the characters lead the way. Uh, but it, it has to be said that I did uh, write this novel and gave it to my publisher and there were only certain elements that were working and I had to completely rewrite it um, after a discussion with her. But that's okay, you know, that's the journey of writing a novel. And, and even though I didn't use a lot of the original material, it formed the foundation of the novel and helped me to get to know the characters. And then I was able to find the threads, the hope and the touches of humour that make the book accessible and make the character somebody that you invest in and love. And and also makes it redemptive as well. Uh, we we know Tasmania for its beauty, but we also know it for its brutality and the harshness of its history and and some of the things that happened down there. Its landscape is is fairly harsh, but again, um, beautiful in its own way. Our character Kurt, uh, which is Mickey's brother, we don't like him very much, do we? Well, we have to remember that Kurt, he's 10 years older than Mickey, and we have to remember that he has been brought up in this restrictive lifestyle as well. So Mickey has been homeschooled, as I said, on this small, and her brother, homeschooled and brought up on this orchard in Tasmania. It's quite a misogynistic household. Um, the men have their jobs out in the orchard and doing the farm work. The women have the domestic jobs. And this is what they've been brought up. This is what Kurt has been role modelled, a very controlled situation. They don't have contact with the outside world, um, even though Mickey longs for it. And I, I just wanted to talk a bit more about Kurt because I think you know he in when they're living together in the takeaway shop and, and Kurt continues this oppression and control of Mickey's life this is what he knows from what he's seen from his father and secondly I think he actually gets off a bit on the control and there are some men that do have that desire for tight control of their females and uh, and so he does make Mickey's life quite difficult but she she's you know she loves him she's he's all she has and um, they have shared experiences from their childhood in the forest up behind the farm, but also uh, in the forest behind the town where they, they share time together amongst the trees. Uh, there's a massive tree up there that Mickey really loves uh, to stand beneath and to go inside. And in fact, can I read you a little bit just here about when Mickey um, sees her big tree? It's just a short bit. Would you, do you mind if I, I just beautiful. give you that sense? I think that's cool. Um, Mickey wandered around the huge trunk. So this is a massive mountain ash, um, eucalyptus regnans. That's about, you know, one of those trees I've just described earlier. She wandered around the huge trunk, running her hand across the woolly bark, listening to the hush of wind in the leaves. Around the far side, a fire scar had cut a chasm into the heartwood, an opening large enough for a human to enter. She hooked a hand around the curved edge of the scar and ducked inside the hollow. Within the tree's thick skin, it was dark and quiet, dense with the sweet scent of rotting wood. Her feet sank in a soft bed of crumbled debris, and when she peered up, she could just make out a circle of light way above where the tree's crown had blown out, so far away. Closing her eyes, she heard a faint whisper, the tree sighing out secrets, breathy stories of ages past, wind and weather, black people sliding through the bush. If she held her breath, she could feel the heartbeat of the world. So that just gives you a little feel of, of Mickey's love 
uh, of the forest and the trees and her connection with it. And in that forest, or, sorry, you might want to say something. I'm not sure there. Oh, all I'm going to say is um, I love landscape novels. I love it when uh, the character is uh, the landscape and, and you get that intimacy, which comes through very, um, very quickly in that little passage that you wrote. Did you visit the southwest? Did you spend time down there? Of course. Yes, I spent quite a bit of time down there. I've travelled down there with my family. I have a very strong connection to Tasmania. Um, In the mid-90s, I went twice down to Antarctica as a volunteer veterinarian and I spent time before and after going there. I spent time in Hobart and surrounds. I've done lots of bushwalking down there, um, travelling. I don't name towns in this novel, but it is because I wanted the town to be fictional because I didn't want locals to think I have taken their town and imposed my idea of what it's like on on their lives because that's not what it is this is my my own journey of exploration but it is set around that Jeeveston, Hewanville, um, Dover, Southport sort of all that area around there and a little bit of an amalgam of those areas and yes I did spend a lot of time down there I had a couple of writing retreats where I went back to ground truth what I'd written and to make sure I had that feeling of being in place what I love about Tasmania, Mel, is the light, and which is why I keep going back to Tasmania. That you get that long, soft light, and I like the, the cold weather. Um, I like the water. I love the water and the, the, water ref- the light reflecting off water, and, and this is all part of where the story begins. And then those characters, they rise out of the landscape and place. So, for instance, here we've got a, a country town. So I think about the types of people that might live in uh, this sort of area. And though there's increasing tourism in that area now, um, there is a lot of poverty. People don't have easy, easy lives. People in the timber industry, the, the people that own the machinery that cuts the forest, they might be making money. But the people that are working on the ground or running those machines are not making a lot of money and they have difficult lives. And there are you know, financial pressures and other pressures on families. And this, so we go landscape, character, and then, as you can see, that drives the narrative of what might happen to those characters in this landscape. Yeah, and you spend, as you said, you spent time at writers' retreats uh, and, you, and you go down and you live and breathe and experience, I guess, the details of your novels. Do you think that makes you a better writer and a stronger writer? Oh, of course. And, and um, it, it helps me to write my truth, I suppose, or what I, 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 that's my perception of what I feel in this place, of course. And it's not me imposing and saying, this is what people's lives um, have to be like down there. But what I like to try and do is, is immerse myself in a place, feel what the character, try to feel what the characters might be feeling, what they might be facing, how that affects their lives. And, of course, that can only come through as um, more genuine and more believable in my novels. And it's a great challenge for a writer, Mel, to get inside the skin of their characters and bring them to life. Of course, the characters have their own life after some time when you, you are writing them and they tell you more what to do. But that's the great challenge, trying to understand the human condition from a different perspective. And this is what I'm trying to do in my writing. Yeah, and I think it comes through very strongly, everyone, and this is sort of what I'm, I'm sort of hinting around here. Uh, Karen, you have had an amazingly successful writing career already because um, this, is, this is book number four, and only by listening to you now 
it becomes very apparent um, why um, quite quickly. You had great success with your books in France, which we talked about before the podcast because I thought I was going on a trip to um, France, everybody, but that's not actually the case, is it? Um, you were going to come in my suitcase, were you, Mel? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no, look, uh, it's really interesting. I've been very fortunate to have um, a great deal of success in France, which all seems a little random sometimes when I think about it, but I guess you have to have a good novel that people can relate to. So the, the, um, the breakout or the great fortune came with my novel, The Lightkeeper's Wife, which interestingly the French renamed as uh, The Memory of Ocean Spray. They're very poetic. And um, they put a different cover on it. I have a lovely French publisher, um, Les Escales, and also I'm published by Livre de Poche over in France. And they put a very elegant, non-gender specific cover with an, a lighthouse on the front. And um, the publisher really got behind the novel. And there's also this amazing um, guy, a bookseller called Gerard Collard, who has a bookshop just outside of Paris called La Griffe Noire, The Black Claw. And he's really uh, quirky and eccentric and passionate about books. And at least once a week he goes on France TV and talks about books. The French are extremely passionate about literature. They love their books. And um, I think, you know, his support, he went on French TV and said this is one of the top ten books of the summer, which, uh, and the book sold 100,000 copies in the first month and has gone on to sell over half a million, um, that particular novel over in France. Um, and then there was, I think, when I did go over and visit uh, France Mel and talk to them about my novels because all three of my previous novels have now been published there and The Orchardist Daughter is coming out in just a couple of months over in France where it will be called The Rustling of Leaves. Um, so when I did go over there, I asked my French readers what it was that they connected with in my novels, and, and there were a number of things. And firstly, the French love nature, and they are very concerned about conservation um, and the future of the world. They love wild places, and all my novels are set in amazing wild places in Australia, which we are so fortunate to have. The second thing is that the French love a good philosophical question to tussle with. So um, each of my novels hovers above an issue. So the first novel, The Stranding, hovered above the issue of whale um, whaling and also the rescue of a whale, the ethics of rescue and whether we should or shouldn't in certain circumstances rescue a stranded whale or whether in some cases in our efforts to help humans can get in the way and make things inhumane. The second novel, The Lightkeeper's Wife, uh, was about isolation um, and how that affects lives and relationships. But it also hovered above questions about choices at the end of life for humans. And that's something I deal with a lot in a veterinary context. And, and so I was thinking about death as a part of life and, and what is humane about veterinary practice and as compared to what we do for, for humans um, at the end of life. The third novel, The Grass Castle, hovers over uh, kangaroo culling, which is a big issue in the ACT where I live, uh, where kangaroos um, are quite numerous, eastern grey kangaroos, and annually um, they are culled in order to uh, allow other endangered species to have a chance of continuing. And so then this novel is, as we know, is, is set above the uh, issue of forestry. So the French seem to love that. They also, am I going on too much? They no. also love rural landscapes they really revere their farmers and the rural way of life and most of my novels are not set in cities they're set in a country context in a rural context um, and finally the French don't uh, don't need a happy uh, happily ever after tied up with a bow 
ending. So my novels, I like, she says, with great modesty, I like the endings of my novels. I think they end on an upbeat, on a good positive kick, but I don't want to tie everything up because life isn't like that. Is it? You know, we, we never quite reach the end of having everything exactly as we like it. And um, I chose my publisher because one of the, the publishers uh, that I initially was in great fortunate uh, situation to choose from gave me a book and said, can you end it uh, your novel like this, which was a marriage proposal on the beach on horseback at sunset, and I was unable to go there. <laughs> well, thank God you didn't. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I'm enjoying listening to you, and the intimacy of the details that you're sharing is is making me want to go and buy all your books and learn more about the world in which you inhabit as an author. Where where did that come from? Um, because I assume you know you know you're a PhD in veterinary surgeon. That's a very practical level. But everything I'm hearing um, from you today about your authoring is it's very very intimate. Have you always been a writer? I've always been a writer since I could pick up a pencil and form sentences. So um, I wrote my first story that I won a prize for in grade two at school or year two. They call it now. Shows how old I am. Um, and look, I had a childhood not only of writing and reading, we had a little farm in the Dandenong Ranges uh, near Melbourne, but I also spent a lot of time riding through the landscape on my pony and later on my other horses. And so I'm a person that enjoys solitude and enjoys just being among nature. So I would spend hours, you know, um, on the weekends and midweek on Wednesdays, riding through the rolling hills, the green hills of the Dandenongs, and through the, the local forests, we could just ride through there. And, um, you know, I think that gave me this lovely connection, this important connection to nature, which is so central to who I am. I mean, I feel my most, feel most myself when I'm in nature. I, you know, I love going to the beach when there's nobody there and walking along the beach or just sitting on the sand and listening to the, the waves coming in and looking at the patterns and the light and um, that's where I find peace or in the mountains, uh, even above the tree line, listening to uh, the air moving among the rocks and water running down um, little gully lines and stuff like that. Can I do another reading for you here? Because I think this is quite, it's even though it's not me, and parts of me must be in Mickey. This is so Mi cool. Please do. Is, okay, so, so Mickey's world is living inside this takeaway shop. And, it's, and we'll talk later, I hope, Mel, about the ways in which she makes connections and friends. But um, she lives inside this takeaway shop or she lives under the canopy in the forest when she's out in the forest. And this little section here is the first time, because it's not giving too much away, you can guess that she's going to become friends with Leon. It's not giving too much away to describe the first time that she goes above the canopy into the mountains with Leon and how that makes her feel. So I'll, I'll read that little bit now. Okay. She followed him along a trail that plunged through tall heath before opening onto a boardwalk, winding across the plain where the scrub grew low and spiny. Clumps of grass shivered and swayed, and Mickey thought of the moors above Wuthering Heights where Cathy and Heathcliff had roamed. They had loved country like this. It had connected them. Jane Eyre had loved it too. She had traipsed the wild moors near Thornfield Hall where she'd met Mr Rochester and frightened his horse. Now Mickey could see why these characters had loved the high country so much. It spoke to her soul. She felt energy and strength in the wind and the rocks. As Leon strode ahead, she noticed lightness in his gait. 
he must like it up here too. Maybe this was his place. The track led towards a distant, mist-shrouded mountain. Ahead, light broke through the clouds in shafts, casting shadows on the land, and it was beautiful. They crossed tea-brown streams trickling over lichen-patched rocks. Up high, the slopes were needled with granite and the stunted shapes of wind-scoured trees. The track began to descend, and then a lake appeared out of the mist, a silvery eye with zephyrs of wind ruffling its slate-grey surface. Wild, isn't it, Leon said, and she nodded. I love the cold air and the views, he went on. When I look out, I see patterns of light and dark, colours in the scrub, places where the soil changes. It's like a story written into the rocks. Mickey tried to see what he saw. When she looked closely, there were shadows and creases in the land, dimples and folds, shades of brown, grey and green. She thought how the land was made of many things, forest and heath, mountains and streams, plains, lakes, clouds, sky. The land had layers, like people, like trees. Every element complemented the others and every element was different. She liked how things came together to make a whole, a landscape, a country, a world. Everything was here. There we go. Thank you. You can't write like that, I don't think, without having that immersive experience yourself and and being at one, I guess, with your landscape. And I keep coming back to that because that's what's shining through for me. Uh, where fact, facts end and fiction begins is some, it's an article you've got on your website there. This <laughs> is where you, I think, you put yourself in the situation of your characters and you explore uh, where that will take you. Yes, look, I do do a lot of research. So I'll do a lot of historical reading about a region. So I read a lot about the um, the timber, history of the timber industry in um, that southern Tasmania area. Um, and I read a lot of stuff about Indigenous history, even though that doesn't show up much in the novel. I think that's all really important as the foundation upon which to build a novel. So, so I do do a lot of research in that way. And I try to write what's in in my heart because that's the only way I can I can write um, truly as well and I think that comes across very very strongly as we're as we're chatting today and and it's what I love about um, I think it's what I love about your novels and the more I'm speaking to you I think I'm going to have to go back and get the the lightkeeper's wife as well uh, where you're where you're going now with your writing are you going to continue in this vein or are you discovering more about your own writing processes that's going to take you, I guess, in new directions? Um, look, I have a number of ideas sitting on the shelf, uh, some of which are partly written. And so um, at the moment it's fairly hectic with um, try supporting my book as it goes out into the world, but I hope to begin writing again soon. And um, I guess I'll have to see how I feel and which one of those uh, ideas I, I will go with. The thing is, you know, I don't write a, a novel a year. I can't do that. There's um, a lot of getting to know the characters and, as I've said, getting to know the landscape and the history and the backstory of my characters. And so I can't do one a year. It takes a lot more time. When you read my novels, I look at The Orchardist Daughter now and I think, oh, the writing looks so simple. But you've no idea how much work it has taken crafting every chapter, paragraph, sentence, word to make it that way. So you work so hard to make it look easy. But what's also important to me in my writing probably more so now I'm more conscious of it than I used to be is the music and the rhythm of the words and using 
literary techniques which are hopefully invisible to the reader but which make the reading um, all the more beautiful. But what I really um, focus on as well is, is keeping movement in the novel so that it's not bogged down. So it, you would describe my work as a crossover between commercial and literary, so accessible literary fiction, so that it moves and you're pulled along by the characters and that hopefully you don't notice that, you know, what's going on underneath in the literary sense. I was actually going to avoid the whole conversation between literary fiction and, uh, I guess, commercial fiction. But now that you've brought it up, it's a, it's a little passion of mine and a little hobby horse of mine. It takes time to write a good book. It does take time. Um, it does for me anyway. Some people can do uh, a great first draft. My first drafts are completely horrible. But they're also enjoyable because what I have to do in order to do that creative early draft is I have to separate from my editor which as you can imagine is really hard when you've just come out of a novel and you've had your own personal editor at her most energetic and most critical it's really hard to separate from that editor and then go on the journey of a new work so sometimes I have to do a lot of warm-up stuff uh, where I do sort of stream of consciousness writing which is um not self-conscious at all, where you just dump stuff down. And then the first draft is, is, draft is often like that, tons of cliche, horrible sentences, lots of overwriting. I would say, people say, how many drafts? Oh, six or 60, somewhere in between, you know, working, reworking, going backwards and forwards, threading things through, looking at how I might leave a reader at the end of one chapter to bring them into the next chapter. But that doesn't come in the first couple of drafts. That comes over time, which is why possibly it takes so long. Because I, I want to write the best book that I can to put out there for a reader so that it's a smooth experience. And it's also helped a lot by the editing that goes on in-house at the publishing house where I'm published. Yeah. And, and everyone, there's so much pressure now to produce quickly, uh, but sometimes the story just will not be told quickly. You have to, you have to I guess, um, dig down, dig down really deep to find out what it is that you're, you're going to say next. Uh, so that's inter it's interesting that you should say that, Mel, because um, one of the other publishers um, that I met initially were very excited about um, about my first novel, The Stranding, and I'd already started on The Lightkeeper's Wife, and they wanted to do a, a two-book deal, but I had a feeling they were in a hurry, and I thought, oh, I don't want to put it out there until it's right. So I actually chose um, the publisher that would do the best job of nurturing me and push me hardest, and I think that has helped me to create, you know, my best work that I can. Yeah, and they're the decisions that you, that you have to make, aren't they, um, very, very early on. That's true. That's true. Can I just, you know how we were talking about literature? Can I, yep. I know this is going back to the novel, but can I just talk about um, an important thread about literature in the novel? Oh, um, is this to do with Mickey and books? Yeah. Can we talk about that cool. a little? We certainly can. So it's, um, again, I don't think it's giving too much away to say that Mickey only has, she loves books and she has three. She has Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. That's all she was able to bring from her farm. Uh, when they had to leave the farm. And I chose those books because I thought that the, the female protagonists were ones that Mickey could relate to and learn something from. And, uh, and she loves those three books and reads them over and over. And we were saying how oppressed Mickey was, but she does find a way to get out. And she does connect with a lovely lady that she meets down at the local visitor centre, who is also passionate about books and who knows about Mickey's situation where she's so hemmed in by her brother, Kurt. 
And she finds a beautiful way of connecting with Mickey by offering her books, offering her classic literature. And she, what I love about this connection, even though I sort of made it up myself and I sound like I'm being immodest, but what I love about this connection is that Geraldine, this lady at the visitor centre, she allows the books she gives Mickey to do the talking. She doesn't tell Mickey what she needs to do and how she needs to change her life. She allows Mickey, who she knows is an intelligent young woman, desperate for knowledge and, and the world, she allows the books to give Mickey guidance and ideas. And then they have little discussions about them. And, and that's a really beautiful thread of the novel for me. Yeah. And as an English teacher, I'm already thinking, wow, this could go on syllabuses. Uh, freedom. <laughs> freedom is a theme. Uh, finding freedom, whether it's within yourself or in external, I guess, landscapes. That, that whole freedom, the three books that you mentioned, Jane Eyre, Tessa Durbervilles and um, Wuthering Heights, they're all about character strength, aren't they? They are all about character strength. And, and even though Mickey is oppressed and she's a gentle soul, she is a strong, a strong soul. Um, she, you know, she deals with this degree of oppression from her brother, which becomes increasingly more tense um, as he feels, he must sense that she's, um, that, that she, you know, she's got this urge inside to, to be herself and to have her own life. And so his oppression becomes greater. But she, she connects, Mickey connects with symbols of freedom in the landscape as well. So she loves the wedge-tailed eagles that are nesting up in the forest um, because they have a freedom that she envisages for herself but doesn't have. And she also loves the Tasmanian devils um, that are at the tip, as I mentioned earlier. But what she, what she is afraid of for those devils, they are free and they are strong-spirited and feisty and she really admires that in them. But she's also afraid for them because um, in Tasmania many people would know that um, devil a facial tumour disease is a significant issue for devils and has decimated many populations by up to 90%. And it's Mickey's passion for the devils and wanting to save them that first makes her reach out to talk to people. Um, and, you know, I don't think this is giving too much away because it's these small ways that Mickey finds to be powerful that, that are the heart of the novel. I, I don't think it matters what you give away now. I think you've hooked us all. I um, hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Now I've got to ask this question and this one's not written down. Who's your favourite character? Oh, who's my favourite character? That's a hard one to answer because I feel that I have a great love and empathy for all of them. And I love them for different reasons. Like I love Leon for his, so he, we, we should talk about his connection with the Lightkeeper's wife a bit more later, but he's, he's got great resilience and great determination. And, and his way of making connection in the town is by joining the local AFL team where he's really not wanted, but they need him because they've got a few injuries and they're a few numbers down, but he is given a hard time in this team. And yet he's really persistent at trying to belong. So I love that about Leon and I love his care nature because he has empathy for his mother's situation he can see what's going on in the town and he reaches out and forms friendships with people um, to help them which which I think is wonderful I love Mickey because of her gentle um, steely strength she there's beautiful strength she has underneath her and her um, and her patience and also for her love of literature and her love of nature that's what I love about Mickey and I love Max, the 10-year-old boy who we haven't touched on very much. I love him because of the wonderful view he offers us of the world, which is quite different from a child's perspective, where he sees things for what they are and doesn't make judgments because he hasn't that experience of the world to say, oh, it should be like this or it should be like that. So I love his perspective. I love his bond with 
with the dog, his, fa his father's dog, and with the puppies uh, that she has and his desire to protect those puppies. So, yeah, I can't say there's one of my favourites. I, I love them all. I've, I've got to tell you, everyone, that the passion that I'm hearing in your voice, Karen, is inspiring. Uh, the depth of, of, I guess, love of landscape is something that I can relate to very, very well. My all-time favourite writer has always been Tim Winton. Uh, I'm guessing you're, you're going to usurp that. Well, that'd be nice. I'd be love, love to be known as a, fe a female Tim Winton because he is also my favourite um, Australian novelist because yeah. of, you know, the two main things that, that resonate with me, which is his, his evocative portrayal of landscape uh, where he takes us into the landscape, as I also try to do, and the way he takes us into the skin of his characters, and that is also what I'm aiming to do. So, yes, you can call me a female Tim Winton if you like, Mel. That would be lovely. <laughs> yeah, and the whole time I've been listening to you, I've been thinking Tim Winton, um, my own miner's wife, um, I just I wrote um, with him in mind. Listening to you, you're reminding me of my own writing and my passion for, for landscape writing as well. I wish you all the best with this book. I'm going to go out and buy all three now. Uh, everyone, you can find Karen at um, karenvigors.com, isn't it? www.karenvigors.com, yes, that's right, yeah. and on social media. Oh, I'm just looking at your Facebook page now and you've got this amazing map of Tasmanian place names. Um, <laughs> Pisspot Creek, um, Bust Me Gut Hill, Little Des, uh, Dismal. I'm going to copy that over to my Facebook page, everybody. That's the best map of Tasmania I've ever seen. Stumpy Bottom. <laughs> A lot of our early explorers um, named, uh, you know, places for their difficulties, didn't they? You know, like Lake Disappointment and uh, Shipwreck Bay and Storm Bay and, uh, you know, places like that. The mountains as well often have Mount Blowhard. Yeah. <laughs> Very or evocative. Dead, <laughs> Dead Man's Creek, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's so cool. Um, I don't think you're going to escape the literary fiction title. I think you're going to have to wear it forever. Uh, do you want to do one more reading before we go so we can finish with some more of that beautiful, beautiful writing? Oh, I don't know if I've got another one marked. Let me have a look here. No, the, the, the other one that I have marked, I don't want to read because it's a, it's a really important um, moment for Mickey and, and I don't want to, to read that one. I could, I could read the very beginning. Would you like me to read, read that? But it's, it's a, the opening. It's about, yeah. Okay, the opening, the prologue, because we've already talked about, a little about this. She was asleep when it happened, so she didn't hear the embers collapse as the log rolled from the fireplace onto the floor. She was dreaming of escape, tearing off her apron as she ran barefoot down the long pothole driveway, past the lines of twisted apple trees and onto the gravel road that led away from here. In her 16 years, she'd only been down that road once. It led to another world where perhaps God was kinder and someone else helped with the jobs. The others were asleep too, so no one, nobody noticed the clothes rack slump onto the log. Nobody noticed the flames licking at the crumpled clothes, stroking with liquid fingers, fizzing in the fibres. Nobody saw the fire ignite the faded carpet and the worn, sagging furniture, the pedestal with father's leather-bound Bible. In her dreams, she was walking towards a different horizon, a carpet of trees, shifting shadow and light. A voice floated around her, waxing and waning, warping, disintegrating. She struggled to make out the words. Then the voice became clearer, her brother shouting, get up. Something crashed into her room and she opened her eyes. Smoke billowed like thick fog and a cough punched her chest. Her brother loomed over her, his hands rough on her shoulders, shaking her, encouraging her to move. But she couldn't breathe. She was smoke-addled, ragdoll loose. 
An insistent sound rumbled through the house, vibrating and roaring. She felt it in her skin, in her bones, everything humming to its rhythm. The smoke had thinned and the light was surreal, orange, flickering. Her brother pulled her from bed and she slumped to the floor. Around her she heard crackling and hissing and an evil heat radiated from the door. Was this hell? Had God come to punish her? Her brother hauled her across the room, wrenched open the window and shoved her out, dropping her among the rose bushes. She landed on hands and knees, gasping, smoke scraping her lungs, no air. Thorns snagged her skin, tore at her hair as she dragged herself free. She crawled to the driveway and hunched there, struggling against faintness until her throat released and she sucked in a lungful of air, a rasp drawn through her body. The house was burning. Smoke poured from under the eaves and flames clawed the sky. As she watched, a trickle of flame shimmied up the pine tree beside her bedroom, racing up the trunk, along the branches, through the needles snapping and popping. Transfixed, she huddled, mesmerised, terrified as the whole tree lit up. But where was her brother, her parents? Stumbling to her feet, she ran around the house on the circular driveway, toes crimping on gravel. No one. There was no way back in. The house was alive with fire. She stood powerless watching it burn. I'm going to stop there. That's not the whole of it, but I'll stop there. I think I'm hooked, everyone. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic place to stop. I think I've discovered a new favourite author. Uh, again, literary fiction, fiction that is so hard to write and so easy to read. It's a skill that very few of us have. Uh, thank you, Karen, for joining us on Writer on the Road and inspiring me and hope, hopefully inspiring all of us. Thanks, Mel. This has been great. Okay, and that's it from another episode of Writer on the Road.